Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. We are in downtown Peoria, Illinois, the home of the beautiful Peoria Riverfront Museum. And we have a special guest today, Jeff Sherman is joining us this time in person. We talked with you about a year ago. Thanks for joining us, first of all. Oh, my pleasure. And you were in town to show The Boys, a Sherman Brothers story, a fabulous documentary about your dad and your uncle, the uh, Walt Disney music duo, and they worked for other companies as well. And it's, a, it's one of the best Disney documentaries I've ever seen. For one folks. of? I'm sorry, I had to. <laughs> Well, this concludes our episode. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Don't forget to un-un-un. All right. I'll behave, I promise. For oh. folks who haven't seen the film, uh, why don't you give us a, a synopsis of the movie? Well, my father and uncle, as you mentioned, were uh, principally Walt's in-house songwriters from 1960 till he died in 1966. I'm asking you guys would know better than I would. Um, and uh, then continued writing for them afterward. Uh, they weren't guys that publicized themselves. They weren't like, you know, Burt Backrack or Marvin Hamlish, and you know those names. They weren't really household names. They just liked to work and contribute to things. And my dad and my uncle were getting a little bit older. And I got together with my cousin, who I didn't know very well, which if you see the Boys of Sherman Brothers story, you understand why we didn't really. Uh, but we got together and we wanted to pay tribute to them and connect them to their legacy of a thousand published songs and 50 movie soundtracks and all that stuff because they weren't, they weren't self-publicists, they didn't like to do it. And I also wanted to do it because for myself, my dad, um, I never really thought, even though he did all this stuff, I never thought he really connected with the contribution that he made and, and the legacy that he left. So I wanted in his lifetime for him to see the movie and see all of it together. So that's why Greg and I got together, and my cousin Greg and I got together and made the movie. So let's dive into your dad and uncle. They were very different outside of the studio, but they made incredible music together. Talk about the uh, dynamic relationship they had. Well, they were two and a half years apart. My dad's the older brother, but they were always from little kids. They were very different types. My dad was kind of quiet and shy, Robert. Um, and he was a poet and he was an artist and he had all these different kind of things but he was sort of an internal guy my uncle was hyperactive and <laughs> self admittedly he'll tell you and he would you know he was always seeking attention and wanting to get in there but my dad was kind of the the the, the golden boy the older son a little bit so he was a little jealous of him um, and as they progressed through their career they worked together for their entire careers basically as adults um, those kind of differences kind of cemented themselves. And while it didn't make for a great interpersonal relationship, the fact that they were two very different guys, as we show in the movie, um, really contributed to what made these songs. It, it caused sort of a friction, a kind of a chemistry that, that allowed them to create things that probably nobody else could create. They had a familiarity as brothers, but they were very polar different, polarized personalities. So Poppins was, of course, the first big, you know, um, hit for the boys. Um, but they had been working for Disney for several years before that. Talk about how that Disney connection was made. And I think it, Annette had something to do with that. Yeah, well, they had written a song that was recorded by a, one of the Mouseketeers named Ju Judy Harriet, I think. 
and um, it was called Tall Paul. And they had written the song because all the songs were being written about boys singing about girls, you know, different types. And they said, let's write one of a, a girl singing for a boy. It's picked up by Ju Ju Judy Harriet. She records it. And at the same time, Annette Funicello was the Mouseketeer that was getting all the letters. She was the big popular Mouseketeer for various reasons. But she was kind of, if you ever watched the show, she kind of stood out a little bit. And so Walt really loved her and wanted to have her have a recording career outside the Mouseketeer show. So the first song he chose was Tall Paul. So it became this thing. And then they, my dad and uncle were brought in and they started writing all, pretty much all the Annette hits. They wrote, I don't know, 17 or something songs for Annette. They wrote Pineapple Princess and, and a bunch of these. Those were the Hawaiian Annette yeah. album? Well, the, the great thing was they were so versatile, they could write in any style. And so they, the Annette albums were Hawaiian Annette, Dance Annette, Italianette, <laughs> all of them. They said when she was going to have babies, it would be Bassinet, you know. Um, and so they would write, in, they could write in any kind of a song. And so Disney saw these two guys who he kind of didn't know that well. And he, and Annette was going to do a movie called The Horse Masters, a TV movie for the Sunday night uh, movie show that he did. And um, so they, he had them in and they were told the wrong, uh, well, they knew that's the assignment, so they came in with a song called uh, Strummin' Song that they sold, and it was their first movie for, song for a Disney movie. But Disney had them into the office. They didn't know they were going to meet with him. They were just, Jimmy Johnson, who was the head of the music department there, said, you know, come on in, and they drove to the studio. They didn't park on the lot because they didn't have any money to pay. They thought they had to pay for parking on the lot, and they parked on the street and walked in. And Jimmy goes, come on, Walt's waiting. And so they went and they, they meeting with Walt Disney, who is, you know, enormous. It's like meeting the Wizard of Oz. And they, and they walk in and um, uh, he says, he starts pitching on the movie that he wants him to write songs for. And it's not the Horse Masters. He goes, it's these two girls, they're at summer camp. They've never met before, but they're sisters, they're twin sisters. And they're looking at each other like, we didn't write anything for this. And so my dad, and they were told not to call him Mr. Disney. He liked being called Walt. And so my dad goes, Mr. Disney, we, and he goes, Walt. And he goes, okay. He goes, we, we, we wrote for the Horse Masters. He goes, okay, and play that song and that'll work. Okay. He goes, but here, I want something written for these two girls. And so they ended up getting that assignment. And they, but they were depressed because they thought that'll work. That song was, a, you know, they liked the song. And this, who's this Disney guy I think he is, right? Jimmy Johnson goes, guys, you just got a song placed in a Disney movie and he gave you an assignment for a second one. Nobody gets that. So they, they realized and they came around. And uh, that was sort of the bridge. Annette came to, you know, got them into Disney and then he hired them. Uh, to, as staff song, the only staff songwriters he ever had. Yeah, that'll work, I think, was about the best compliment you could that, get out of Walt. That meant he was going to put all of his resources behind it. it was going to, but he was on to the next thing. He was just very kind of that way. Well, and let's talk about resources. So, uh, a wonderful tribute. How do you approach your cousin and the Disney company? I mean, the idea is there. What's the next step to make this wonderful The, the documentary? Picture? Yeah. Well, we had originally, Greg and I, um, we had been asked... Um, to meet with this woman who supposedly had a hundred million dollars in Chinese funds to make movies and she wanted to do a scripted movie about the Sherman Brothers and by the way if you ever find out somebody offers you a hundred million dollars from they're they're not telling you the truth <laughs> but Greg and I who had not known each other which is also discussed in the movie a bit um, we got together for the first time to talk about our dads with this woman and we found out we were finishing each other's sentences
Hmm. We were we had that kind of same thing going on, and we were both. And she goes, "You guys are brothers," and it's no, we don't even really know each other. So um, we lived seven blocks apart, but we didn't know each other socially. And uh, so that fell apart because there was no hundred million dollars apparently. And uh, but um, Greg and I got together, and we were we decided we would figure out a way to do a scripted biopic of our dad. So that's what we wanted to do: actors coming in and doing it. And to present it, I took I took Greg out for his bre uh, for his birthday lunch at a little deli near our house in Studio City. And I said, you know, Mary Poppins, the, the stage musical, is opening on Broadway. It had been in England, but it was opening on Broadway. I said, to sell this idea of our dads, because they, again, they weren't really connected to their songs. People didn't, said, you know, they didn't know this was a Sherman Brothers song necessarily, so we, it was hard to sell that project. I said, let's tie them in with our songs. Why don't we get one crew at Mary Poppins at the opening to follow your dad and another crew to follow my dad and because they hadn't seen each other at that point in like, like five years and I said let's just we'll both go to the theater and see what happens and we'll start shooting this and then that grew into shooting some of the people that were there like Roy Disney and Cameron McIntosh and you know just the various people that were there Tom Schumacher is the head of Disney theatrical and we did about 10 interviews and with our dads we did one together with them, and my dad, as always, just shut down because my uncle talks over him. <laughs> um, so, um, so then we did them individually, and those are the ones we used. Um, and we got this thing, and we put it together. We cut together a 25-minute presentation. We gave it to Tom Schumacher and to Roy Disney, and they both called um, Dick Cook, who was the chairman of the, of the film department then. And I got a call at home from Dick Cook, they said, can you hold for Dick Cook? I said, yes. <laughs> and he goes, I hear you got something special I got to see. Come in, can you come in tomorrow with your cousin and I want to see it? And I said, yeah. So we had this 25-minute presentation we did out of pocket, you know. And it just kind of set up the premise of the movie without really getting into all the details. And so we go into his private screening room in the Team Biz Disney building, which is the famous building with all the dwarfs on the outside. And uh, we go up to his special screening room with like 30 seats and I'm sitting with my cousin and who walks in the cook by himself and he sits down next to me right here <laughs> I'm like, okay and so he goes well let's take a look at this I hear it's pretty special I said okay I said I hope you like it because and the lights are going down I said I hope you like it because if you don't want to do this we can't do it he goes oh I know <laughs> <sighs> so the whole time I'm kind of watching him out of the corner of my eye and it's 25 minutes goes by. At the end, he's like wiping tears. It was pretty emotional. And he goes, uh, okay, guys, come in tomorrow, and we're going to have a meeting with all the department heads. You're going to do this. We're going to start it as a documentary, and then we'll make a deal with you for a scripted biopic, too. So suddenly I'm a documentary filmmaker, <laughs> as things go. And Greg and I just jumped into it, and we ended up doing 88 interviews around the world. And we did, um, you know, just... We have 160 of their songs in it, and our grandfather's songs, as he was also a composer. Um, and uh, it was uh, about a three and a half year process, and, and uh, fascinating just getting to know my dad in sort of a granular way uh, from his best friend, Sam Golden Jr., who he grew up with, and, and people he worked with, and people that you know, loved him, we, Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz, and all these other huge composers uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, wanted to talk about them. So it was just a great journey for us. 
So working with your cousin, people think, oh, that'd be fun. But you didn't know your cousin. You had this huge shared family history. How was it working with him, getting to know him, how your relationship developed through the course and since? Well, a, a, a tough thing to do. Well, the way I, I actually met my cousin, uh, I mean, I knew him. You know, we'd go to screenings. I'd see him, hey, how you doing, Greg? But I never sat down, never had lunch with him, never, just because our families were very separate. So at the opening of Chitty, uh, in England, I went out, I flew out for like a day to London to see the opening of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at, at the theater there and spend the time with my dad and then I flew back. But that night after the, after the uh, show, they had a, a big party at this, at this club called the In-N-Out Club and it was tons of people. And I, and I, there with my dad and he went to bed and so I'm just looking around this party and I see Greg sitting at the bar doing jello shots. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I went and I walked up to him and I, I sat down and I said, so, what happened with our families? What do you know? He went, I'm so glad you came over here. And we talked all night. Um, and then uh, it was tough, though, because a, a tough thing to do is you go, I don't really know you that well. I've never made anything with you. We haven't really produced together. We know the same story from slightly different angles. But, um, you know, let's talk about our family dysfunction which is going to be a problem. I mean, it's, it's tough. So there were parts of times, and I, I sat down, I think I, I told you, Sean, uh, the, uh, I, I said to Greg at the very beginning of it, I could see that it could be wrought with a lot of contention. So I said, look, the way we're going to approach this is nobody's a bad guy. Our dads are different. They're not, nobody was wrong. It's not about that. It's about the magic of, you know, to me, the, the soul of this piece was always, it's not unusual for siblings to fight, right? Um, and it's not, especially when they're in business together and in that close proximity, but to be able to do that for 50 years and do all these things together and create this, this body of work is really the, the really cool thing about my dad and uncle. So we got, we got through it. There were times that were tough. Every, every now and then our editor would turn around from the, from, the, from the screen and go, you know, what I'm looking at right here with you two guys is much more interesting than what I'm cutting. You know, we go, no, that's not right. Because we would argue, you know, we'd argue through how we're going to do it. And he had his things with, you know, his mother wanted certain things a certain way, Greg's mom. And, you know, my mom was gone at that point. But, you know, I knew my dad wanted certain things. So we were kind of defending those, those aspects. So occasionally got that way. But Greg and I are in business together now. We've stayed really close. And, and you know, we just moved on from it. So That's fabulous. Talk about, you know, I, I'm, I'm very close to my first cousins and um, I've built, you've built this relationship mm -hmm. with your cousin that you didn't have when you were children. Mm -hmm. One of the things about cousins is you have this, these deep roots and you didn't have that growing up. Have you been able to kind of fill family gaps, oh, yeah. learn history, things like that? What, what's your relationship like? today with him besides business? Well, I think I was, probably some of my siblings and cousins would disagree with this, but I, I always had a really close relationship with my uncle. I mostly knew him from, I'd ride my bike after school and go to their office, and they'd play me whatever they'd just written. So I'd hear my uncle just sort of play that, and once in a while my dad would look up and he'd sing a chorus with him and then go back to writing. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> but um, I, having not known my cousin, um, you know, it's interesting because he, he is very different from me, 
but a lot of ways we're very similar and we share, you know, the same grandfather and the same, you know, our families are so dysfunctional that my grandfather on Saturdays would come with me, come down to our house and he'd take me out flying kites, which is where Let's Go Fly a Kite comes from. He was the big kite guy. Um, and, uh, or fishing down on the Santa Monica Pier. Um, and then after he was done with us, he'd drive over to Dick's house, which was seven blocks from our house, and he'd take those kids out and, and do it. But we seldom did it all together. Once in a while, when it was really contentious between my dad and my uncle, my grandfather would say, everybody's coming to the park, and he'd have us all go fly. That happened a couple times. Kind of that was the, that was the, I think that's why they, you know, the family comes together at the end of that movie. So, um, but I, it's, uh, it's really special to me because it really expanded a side of, like on my mother's side of the family, I'm very close to all those cousins, but I really didn't know this side at all. And we've gotten super close. I mean, we've, we've been around the world together and, and yeah. been, it's kind of like being in the army together when you make a movie. You know, there's a lot of battles you fight together. He, he impressed me. He had the skill set I didn't have. I had the skill set he didn't have. So it really worked out well. You talked about your grandfather, who was also a musician. Mm -hmm. Your family history back to your great-grandparents is yeah. just fascinating. Share a little bit about that and how they got to America sure. and musical roots and all those kind of things. Well, my, uh, my father's side of the family was all from a, a town called Ekotrinoslav, which is a non-existent town now, but it was in, uh, in Ukraine, near Kiev. And uh, um, I don't know if you've heard of Ukraine lately? Yeah. Recently. Um, and uh, uh, it's weird when I see all that footage of the people escaping, I think of my, my great-grandparents and my grandparents. But my, my great-grandfather was the concertmaster when he escaped from uh, Russia, they, and he was Franz Ferdinand's um, concertmaster. He was a, a great violinist. And then when they finally got enough money to get to America, they came to, through New York. And he wanted to get work in New York, but he was a foreigner with no connections. So he ended up playing violin table to table in an Italian restaurant, which was demeaning to him. So he didn't want my grandfather, Al Sherman, to go into music. He said, it's not a good field for you. And um, so, but my, my, my grandfather, Al, loved it. So he, he would save his money with pennies and he'd buy these little learn-to-play piano books. And he taught himself to play piano to the point where he was playing mood music for, for silent films. Like that, what that is is when they were doing like a love scene, he he just sort of vamp romantic music or they they whatever it was they needed a chase. He'd be sitting there on the piano. I actually have a picture of the piano he played in that studio. I found it when we were making the movie, um, and uh, and then he had played on barges. He was a band, he had his own orchestra and played and stuff. And then he went into writing songs for popular music and wrote for everybody from Billie Holiday and and Bing Crosby oh. and. Uh, uh, Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, all the, you know, every, everybody, I mean, everybody, uh, he's amazing. Worked with different, uh, he was, he still was, had a thick Russian accent, and he, English was his second language for him, so he'd always use, uh, he'd come up with the title and the music, and then he'd hire, he'd grab one of his lyricist friends. He was in the Brill Building, if you know that, in New York. He was in, had a little office in there, and he, he wrote a lot, he was one of the top ten Tin Pan Alley songwriters of the time. And then went into a couple of stage productions, Busby Berkeley things and stuff. And then he was hired to, to write songs for movies and he brought the family out to California. 
in, in a car with no air conditioning all across the country, and, by, and it wasn't as easy as it is now. <laughs> and they get to California, and the, the producer that hired them had died by the time he got there. So he had no connections, no nothing, but he worked his way up and kept going and, and kept going. So, and then he, he uh, when he was working in New York, one of his other jobs was he was working for a place called Remick Music. And Remick Music was a publishing house, and they would create the sheet music, and, and people would get music for their parlors to play sheet music. But to hear them, they would have all these little rooms where you could go up and have a guy play piano and play this piece for you. So my grandfather was one of these guys, and in the next room was one of his, came one of his closest friends was this guy named George Gerson, who became George Gershwin. And George looked at my 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 grandfather one day and said, you know, Al, the money's in writing songs. You should write some songs. So that's why he started writing. And then he teamed up, um, he helped, Ira Gershwin wanted to write with George, but he was too shy. I think he was an accountant or something. And he told my, my uh, grandfather. So my grandfather brought George down to a diner and said, I've got your new lyricist. And he pointed to the table and it was Ira. So he teamed them up and then teamed up my dad and uncle because my dad was, wanted to write novels and my, my uncle was writing symphonic pieces. And he said, I'm not gonna support these kids forever. <laughs> So um, he said, I'll bet you two geniuses with college degrees could, couldn't write a song that a kid would spend his lunch money on. And he challenged them and they wrote a bunch of songs and Al kept saying no, no, no. And they finally wrote this one song called Gold Can Buy Anything But Love. And he said, that's a hook, that's a great hook, that's great, go sell it. And they went and they actually sold that song to Gene Autry, who recorded it. So that, their first song was, that was done was by Gene Autry, which was pretty good. was the biggest country star at the time. Right. Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, the, the movie, I, like I said, it's one of my all-time favorite, not just Disney documentaries, but documentaries. Thank you. And I love the, the approach you all took on it, and it's so great to hear the background on it. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you weren't able to join us here at the Peoria Riverfront Museum, make sure you watch the film on Disney+. Plus. If you can purchase the DVD, there's tons of great special features on it. So thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Yeah.